0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in
1: person. If you could please stand for our opening prayer.
2: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, St. Michael the Archangel, and all the angels and saints. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
1: Our speaker tonight, Father Jerry Pekorski, is the pastor of St. Michael Catholic Church in Annandale, Virginia, Diocese of Arlington, and was ordained in 1990. He holds a Master of Divinity degree, as well as a Master's degree in Moral Theology. Before ordination, he was a certified public accountant, after receiving a Bachelor of Science degree in Business Administration in 1976. I was born in 1975. He was a co-founder of Crato, a society of priests dedicated to the accurate translation of the liturgy. He is a co-founder of Adoramus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred Liturgy. From 2003 to 2006, he spent three years on loan in the Diocese of Lincoln as the diocesan finance officer. Those were three of the best years of my life because I rented his little A-frame cabin on the Shenandoah River. And that's where I first met Father Pekorski. Please welcome our speaker this evening.
2: Thank you, Deacon Sabatino. The Lord be with you. You see, this is what I'm talking about, Sabatino. Half of you are so pre Vatican II, and the other half are so post Vatican II. Um, We'll get to that. There's a saying that liturgy is too important to be left to the experts. And that's why I'm a non-expert. I have moral theology degree and all, business degree. But it occurred to me as I was preparing for this talk that um, I probably know more about liturgy than many liturgists because of what I, the work that I've done with Credo and Adoremus and all. I probably know more than some Ph.D. candidates. I mean, from a certain vantage point, not some of the technical details, but from kind of an overall view, at least a contemporary view, kind of political science versus history. My understanding is today I'm going to be talking from 1963 until the present, and the next week we'll be getting into some of the translations. Before um, we begin, I, I have in my own mind's eye my outline of my talk, but you might have some uh, concerns or interests, special interests, that I can accentuate. You have, before we begin, can, can you give me some, something you're looking for, answers that you're looking for, or questions you might have that I might be able to answer? Yes? Anything on the tabernacle? Okay, we can talk. The location of the tabernacle. Okay, so some of the, the uh, rubrical things. Anything else? Yes. Uh, we've seen uh, the liturgical martinicum cut out. We've seen the moto proprio. And what do you think may be coming next from Rome in terms of uh, liturgical reform? Uh, good question. What, uh, what can we expect from Rome down the road under uh, Pope Benedict? Anything else? Yes.
1: Why, in 1970, did the Latin world seem to universally agree to turn the altars around and stop using oh, Latin?
2: I prepared for that one. Why did they turn it around?
1: Yeah. There's two things I've noticed since Vatican II. Number one, growing lack of respect for the Eucharist. I mean, we used to be quiet in the inner church. Now it's a big social gathering. Yeah. Second thing is, um, no one believes in hell anymore. There's no hell. Kumbaya. Everybody, you know, God's yeah. going to thank you. And that's a big mistake, As a lot yeah. of people are going to learn this, you know. Okay, we'll
2: talk a little bit about that.
1: Are uh, bishops okay. coming to speak on, on the deception of the devil, by the way? I'd like to know why they just don't go back to the old Latin Mass.
2: Uh, why are they going back to the Latin what, Mass? Why
1: they, why they don't just go completely back to the Latin Mass when they mm-hmm. had all the vocations and the convents were full.
2: Okay. Go ahead. Yes?
1: Oh, I'm going to get my exercise tonight.
0: The difference between the norms and the exceptions that became norms.
2: Is this, the, the norms versus... For, with
0: Vatican II, there were exceptions in the liturgy that became normal and oh. are now norms as opposed to the exceptions that oh, like were communion. spelled out.
2: Communion in the hand. Right, or um, yeah.
0: extraordinary ministers.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question too. There was a question here about reverence. I understand we are
0: supposed to wait until the first Sunday of Advent to change the prayers,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but some dioceses have done this already, some U.S. dioceses. And so I'm wondering are we confused?
2: Oh, well, uh, yes, yeah, that's. It's, uh, sure. What about uh, the communion rails? Will they be coming back? At, at, do we see that coming back at all?
0: just a question about any changes that might happen in the music, since the words are often set to music. Will okay. that change, too?
2: Some of these questions will be answered next session, because it has to do with the current translation.
1: Will there hopefully be more incense?
2: <laughs>
1: more incense, less nonsense.
0: Actually, um, I believe the topic of the talk is what I really wanted to know, which is what's behind the translation. As
1: yeah. We're all Gnostics here. We want to know the secrets. Okay. Yeah. Okay.
2: Okay. Should we get uh, one or two more if, we, if there is? Okay. Well, let's. Uh, have you ever heard somebody get accused of being pre-Vatican II? Have you been accused of being pre-Vatican II? It's a horrible accusation, isn't it? It wilt when you say you're pre-Vatican II. Have you Have you heard of that? Why is that such a damning accusation? Why do you think it's a damning accusation? Where do you think that came from? You're pre vatican II. Yes. You said that you're, on you're on hip. All right. Well, I'm convinced that what happened at the Second Vatican Council you remember why the Second Vatican Council uh, uh, got going? By the way, 170, you're up to speed up to the Second Vatican Council with all the history, right? Now we're starting with the Second Vatican Council continuing. They know everything. They know everything. Uh, you know why the Second Vatican Council was called. It was a pastoral council. It was certainly dogmatic, but it was pastoral. It was to open up the windows. It was uh, Pope John XXIII uh, wanted to make the faith accessible to the modern mind. There were, in in Lumen Gentium, in et Spes, uh, there were certain condemnations of certain types of positions, but for the most part, the council was called, and driven by this need, or at least desire by the Church, to be accessible to the modern mind. In a sense, it changed the game plan for most councils. Every council called, from the Council of Jerusalem, the very first council, to the First Vatican Council, was called by the Holy Fathers in order to combat some sort of heresy or grouping of heresies. There was some problem that needed to be solved. Council of Trent... The Catholic Restoration after the Protestant Revolt. Condemnations, anathema sit. Let him be accursed, is anathema sit. Although um, I named my dog anathema. Um, sit. Um, so there are condemnations of various prepositions, propositions. Not so with the Second Vatican Council. The Second Vatican Council was called in order to be Attainable, accessible by the, by the Catholic mind, or by, by the world and the Catholic mind. And so, what became the enemy? You see, the mentality for some ecclesiastics remained the same. There had to be an enemy out there. What became the enemy? The old church. So when somebody accuses you of being pre-Vatican II, you can counter and say, Not I, thou art the man. You're pre-Vatican II because you're thinking in old terms. The old church became the enemy. Cardinal Ratzinger, then Cardinal Ratzinger, now Pope Benedict, is insisting upon a continuity, continuity from the past with the new, the old and the new. He sees that the Vatican II was not a rupture, and he's insisting it's not a rupture, but in fact a continuation with that said, there's plenty of reasons from an aesthetic point of view, from a disciplinary point of view, from all sorts of point of view, to conclude, at least wrongfully conclude, that there's been a rupture with the past. How many of you, just, just go with your gut on this, how many of you say that Vatican II permitted or insisted that the mass should be in the vernacular, that Latin is no longer normative? Those of you who didn't raise your hand, you're right. Uh, the Vatican II permitted parts of the liturgy to be in the vernacular, the readings, and so on. But the Latin remained the norm. It was only in 1969 that Pope Paul VI, this is 1963 was when the Constitution of the Liturgy was released, Sacrosanctum Concilium. 1969 was the first time where Pope Paul VI said that the vernacular would be the, the norm. So it was not the conciliar fathers. As a matter of fact, I have on good authority that one of the cardinals came back and he told a, a friend of mine, now deceased, that Dr. Bob Edgeworth, the Latinist down in Baton Rouge, told him that um, Latin will be normative, the canon will never, the Roman canon will never ever be anything other than Latin. That was the understanding from the Council of Fathers. So uh, when Latin was pushed off to the side and the vernacular became the exclusive language of the liturgy, you can't blame Vatican II for that. Vatican II instituted or concurred certain reforms of the liturgy, and you, because you studied liturgy up until 1963, you know that there was certain organic development that took place, especially up until the time of the Council of Trent. And after the Council of Trent, there were little tweaks here and there. So the certain reform could take place in accordance with the liturgical reform movement that took place in the first half of the 20th century. But it was shocking to some how fast and furious, is that, can I use that, fast and furious? Does that work? Fast and and furious things, uh, I guess, uh, people were killed. Many people, uh, let me ask you this question. Facing the people, did Vatican II legislate facing the people. Now, can't be found in the documents. Matter of fact, I can't seem to find it any place. But somehow, facing the people became normative. I do it. I say uh, to some priest friends of mine, look, I'm a liberal, I offer Mass facing the people. A little bit of sidebar before we move on. All right, Father, you have the big-shot, sweeping type of comments about the sacred liturgy the way things ought to be. Why don't you at St. Michael's, for example, offer Mass facing east? We do when we do the old Mass at 615, but why not the Novus Ordo? And the answer is, and I'll skip a little bit ahead, you need a certain communal response to to changing existing practices. My concern is that uh, the liturgy now has become hostage in, in a very practical way to certain whims of priests. I remember in my file file here, I showed some of this to Deacon Sabatino. This is called the best of the vile file. Over my years as a seminarian and as a priest, I collect pictures, the best of the vile file. And in here, here is a priest celebrating a mass with a little boy sitting on his lap. It's from 1979. Two-and-one-half-year-old Paul so-and-so sits on the lap of Father Nick Rashford of Rutgers College in Kansas City, Missouri during a consecration of a special children's liturgy. Isn't that beautiful? I have a picture here. Mass, a clown mass from March 6, 1984 in the Milwaukee Journal. Clown mass, there he is. I have the original. I save these things. It's kind of a... Sickness that I have, I guess. Here is uh, Chief Buffy Redfeather Brown blessing the four winds at the end of a Mass in Philadelphia. The Mass then uh, has become... let Let me put this in perspective. Suppose on Easter Vigil, I would announce... You know, the Easter Vigil is three hours long. It's really grand and beautiful. Suppose I would announce... That we're not going to have the Easter Vigil per se. That we're going to have a Handel's Messiah sing along. Seriously. I went down to the Kennedy Center one time and Handel's Messiah, it was really glorious. How many people after the event would say, oh, Father, we should do this every Easter Sunday? Right? You know that would happen. You know that that would be the mentality. And let me tell you from my experience. Funerals. You know what a funeral is? A funeral is when you celebrate Mass, you start with the terrestrial liturgy. This is Cardinal Ratzinger's terms, the cosmic liturgy and the terrestrial. You start with nobody, we're all like W.C. Fields. All things considered, we'd much rather be in Philadelphia. You know, that's what on this graveyard, on this gravestone. All things considered, we'd much rather not be at a funeral, because it's a loved one who died, or a friend. So the Mass begins with the D.C. the Day of Wrath. Not the Day of the Wrath for the Deceased, but reminding us of our own mortality, Right? We continue with the liturgy of the word. Liturgy means work. We are working through the sacred liturgy, and only by the end of the mass can we say, "May the angels lead you into paradise," the paradisium. Only then can we dare to say, "May the angels lead you into paradise," because we work through the sacred liturgy. And when we think of it, it's really kind of a beautiful thing, isn't it? That we have we have this privilege. There's a certain release when we're all done. I'm glad I was there praying for my mother. I'm glad I was there. But let me ask you this. What do you think a life of a priest is when the priest has to explain to the family of the deceased that a eulogy is no longer permitted? It's tough. The eulogy has become the event for funerals now. We don't permit it at St. Michael's. You know Why? It violates the sacred action of the Mass. Here's what happens when you consider eulogy. You start with the terrestrial, everybody's crying. You work through the liturgy of the Word. You end into the liturgy of the Eucharist. People are kind of sobering up a little bit. They end up receiving communion. They're in the cosmic liturgy. And they're about to release the person into everlasting glory, at least uh, anticipating entry into heaven. And guess what happens? You're back to the terrestrial. The person giving the eulogy is giving pretty much profane things about how dad used to drink a little bit too much, you know, and how he, what he did in World War II, that sort of things. And people are laughing and crying. They laugh, they cried. And you're right back to the terrestrial. And so the priest is supposed to, after all of that, is supposed to say, may the angels lead you into paradise. Does that make sense? It doesn't make sense. And so the eulogy is really... Um, it's still permitted. Arguably, it's permitted. I, I talk, as I read the liturgical legislation, I think it's not permitted. But if you look at it from a certain point of view, it, it may be permitted. The 1988 ritual, the uh, funeral ritual, permits it. It was kind of spun in there by ISIL, the, the translators. But um, it was uh, placed in there in a, as an addition to the Roman ritual, not as part of the Roman ritual. Okay, So you had a lot of these things going on. But remember, after the Second Vatican Council, the Mass was allowed to... They set up a a group called Concilium of scholars and bishops and priests and so on who would guide the post-conciliar reform of the liturgy. And uh, they established the structure of the reform, and we'll get into that in a moment. What are the essential parts of the Mass. Do you remember from your catechism? The consecration, the offertory consecration and communion. So you need the bread and the wine and you need to offer that along with the words of institution followed by the communion. When I I can accept a stipend after I consume the precious blood, but not before. That completes the Mass for for the priest. Then the Mass comes to an end. So those are the essentials. Now there's something called... um, Well, the modality, the rites, the various rites out there. The rites that we can observe, the Byzantine rite, the Roman rite, and so on. Pretty much the East and the West are pretty much uh, those two rites are other expressions of the liturgy. And then finally, we have the accidents of the liturgy. The accidents, not to suggest that they're accidental or not very important, but includes the music, the gestures, the uh, movements, the, the setup, the flowers, all those sorts of things. Something I read recently is really quite interesting. The sacred music ought to be, according to one of the conciliar decrees from the Middle Ages, must be biblical. Now, uh, Cardinal Ratziger writing in The Spirit of the Liturgy, points out that these biblical hymns, by excluding everything else but biblical hymns, did cast out a lot of very good hymnody. He said it was necessary at the time, because the hymnody was becoming an end in itself. You see, this is something that we have to understand as Catholics. The liturgy is an end in itself. The sacred liturgy is the end. It's not a means to an end. And so, for example, it's not the platform for a eulogy. It's not the platform, for example, for a, um, within the context of the Mass, for an eighth-grade graduation exercise. That's not the Mass, you can have a, the graduation after the Mass or before the Mass, but the Mass itself does not allow for a graduation ceremony within the middle of a Mass, after the, after the homily, for example, which some of you might have seen. The Mass is not a performance. By the way, you might think that this is all a, a liberal problem. You know, oh, the liberals in the church are ruining things. Uh oh, share of conservatives as well. Conservatives like to be entertained every bit as much as liberals. And so we have to watch out that, I mean, I remember reading something years ago about um, a bunch of devout weekday Mass people that were forced by the priest to sing Kumbaya during the Mass. And they did it. They dutifully did it because because they were told to to do it. And the observation by this outsider looking in said, it was really quite devout. Now, Trust me, kumbaya will never appear, at least under my watch at St. Michael's. But it doesn't rule out that when somebody does something under obedience and under, under reverence and they think this is what needs to be done, there is something to be said for it. Not the anger and the hatreds that sometimes bubble forth. Now, you say, physician, heal thyself. And I, I, take the, I take the criticism because it just these things annoy the daylights out of me. However... Um, When liturgy fails, when we make an accidental into an essential. We've got to be careful not to do that. Things clunk along when the altar boy drops the cruets. Do you know how um, Bishop Sheen, Philton Sheen, tells a story about an altar boy at the 630 Mass uh, was serving this grouchy priest. And um, as he was serving the priest, he dropped the cruets. And the priest lost his temper and says, get out of here and don't come back. But he never did come back. And he left the church at long last. His name was Tito. Tito, Yugoslavian dictator. So, whenever I see my patients losing with, with an altar boy, I think, I don't want to make a dictator out of this kid. <laughs> so, um, things go wrong when we celebrate in the accidentals. A priest stumbles, he coughs, the cell phone goes off, which drives me nuts. But nonetheless, uh, it's the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Uh, one of our, we had a Vietnamese priest in our parish for a while, a lovely man. Uh, difficulty being understood. One of the parishioners, a very good couple, they said, Father, I just can't understand him. I said, but the homily is only five, eight minutes or so. Endure it. I said, we just want to know which Mass he's not there. so we can, I, mean. I said, look. They came back, and they were kind of steaming after one of the Masses, and I said, look, you still left Mass with more than you deserve, right? Jesus Christ, the real presence. So uh, even if you couldn't understand the homily, even the homily, I hate to admit this, even the homily is not important compared to the whole ensemble of the Mass, as long as he's preaching orthodoxy. Huh? So um, all of these things are, are uh, necessary for us to take a look at and as a proper examination of conscience. You know, I think a pastor of souls. I was talking to a, a priest last night. This is another little sideline. Priest last night. And um, sitting at that A-frame Sabatino on the um, Shenandoah River. And we were having uh, venison, assassinated by a parochial vicar. Um, <laughs> great stuff. Don't tell the kindergartners, though. And uh, we were talking about. Um, this theory called the universal salvation, that everyone's going to be saved, right? We've heard of that? Well, I'm thinking, and we both looked at each other and said, what are we good for? If everyone's going to be saved, why did Jesus Christ suffer and die on that cross? And why did he institute a church to carry on this thing? Maybe we're completely wrong. Maybe the funeral eulogies and kumbaya and all this stuff is far more important than what we're doing in the celebration of the sacraments and forgiving sins? And the answer is what St. Paul says. We need to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. This is serious. Our encounter with Christ in the sacraments is very, very serious. This, by the way, this is why you're here. You're interested in the sacred liturgy. You're interested in the history and the proper celebration of it because you know that working out your salvation in fear and trembling is, is necessary, and it's in the back of your mind. And it occurred to me that a lot of times people... Who are um, dying. We visit, we have a a shut in contingent, three priests of the house visit the shut ins all the time, every every week. We consider it an essential part of our ministry. And the reason it's essential is because, I mean, in all fairness, a lot of folks that we visit really are very simple in their faith. And their faith probably is flawed to a significant degree. I mean, this or that person. And they might think it's outrageous that the priest didn't permit a eulogy. And you now know better, right? And they might not understand the difference between imperfect contrition and perfect contrition. And they might not know how to make a perfect act of contrition. And they may not be in the state of grace until they make a simple confession that they were disrespectful to a spouse. And the priest absolves and raises that imperfect contrition to perfect contrition by the way of the sacraments. And the soul becomes as luminous, if we could see it, as luminous as the sun. This is what the sacraments do for us. We don't have to know every... I mean, it's important for us to know our faith, but it's far more important to love the sacraments and trust in the sacraments to make up what is lacking in our faith. This is why we celebrate Mass. This is why we're all concerned with the Mass. And I'm going to warn, because again, you're going to say, physician, heal thyself. Certain things drive me nuts. They all drive me nuts. But if you become, if you go to a Mass that is valid, has the essentials, how easy it is to be distracted with the accidents. You know what I say with the accidents? I mean, even a baby crying, bury your head in the missile and try to even use that baby's cry as a means of prayer. Lord, I offer this distraction up to you. And you know what? That baby reminds me of my own kids. And gee, wouldn't that be nice to have a bunch of babies at Mass? Maybe I shouldn't be distracted at all by these babies. I kind of like the sound of babies. I don't like the sound of cell phones. Babies, <laughs> yes. Cell phones, no. No. Nobody ever complains about cell phones, but they always complain about babies. All right, I'll listen to your baby crying complaints when you get to the cell phones, okay? All right, well, let's, uh, let's go through the little sketch, as I promised, from the Second Vatican Council to the present, and maybe we should be wrapping things up within 15, 20 minutes. So the Second Vatican Council comes out with Sacrosanum Concilium and says that the Mass, the typical edition of the Mass, is always in the Latin. That's the official church document and then the various language groups translated into the vernacular. In the beginning, it was permitted in an an exceptional way to translate the vernacular. But then Paul VI, after reviewing the study of Concilium after the Council, permitted the whole mass to be translated into the vernacular, and then he further decreed that it was the norm. And so that's how we got the vernacular mass as the norm. But the norm doesn't say that the Latin is excluded. The Latin has never been excluded. Turning the altars around to face the people was never, to my knowledge, it certainly wasn't part of Vatican II, and I can't find if I challenge anybody to find a decree somewhere out there, Vatican decree, making it necessary. I don't think it's what anything such exists. The guidelines for the principles of translation can be found in a document called Comme le in 1969. It's a French document. I can't pronounce Comme le without a Midwest accent. But it's a flawed document. It's a flawed document for a number of reasons. My little organization that we founded back in the 1990s revisited that 1969 document. We critiqued it. I mean, I was a scribe and a Pharisee, maybe. Uh, The scholars that I commissioned that got on board did a brilliant job in critiquing Comme les Prevots. And they, they, they said that it was... the principles of translation were deeply flawed, because they encouraged a very subjectivist rather than objectivist translation, a translation that would be meaningful, the expunging of certain words in the Latin. And so, for example, you wouldn't typically see begging or beseeching, or the words like handmaiden or handmaid. You wouldn't hear words like uh, merit. Merit is almost universally excised in the translation, because merit is a distinctly Catholic idea, right? Protestants don't like this idea of merit because all merit comes from Christ, which is true, but we can merit insofar as that we respond to God's graces and use his gifts according to his will. That's how we merit. It was easy enough explanation to all of that. But that was expunged from the translation. The translations were functional, and the masses uh, could continue to be beautiful, but the translations were, were slightly flawed. Well, not only slightly, but... For example, mea cupa, mea cupa, mea maxima cupa was removed. Do you know why it was removed? Repetition is tedious in the English. That always came to my mind. This is one of my distractions in my prayer. When you'd get to the peripsum and through him, with him, in him, and the response would be, amen, hallelujah, amen, hallelujah, amen, amen, amen. They, they, I counted up one time. There was like 15 amens. In one and I thought, wait a minute. I thought, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault, was tedious in the English. And then they had the little responsorials that take place during the Gloria, the constant repetition. Well, so there was some deep flaws in all of this in the translation standards, which were emanating from the Holy See. I mean, was this little commission that was sanctioned by the Holy See. So the translation that was put together was flawed, and it was the ordinaries of the Mass came out in the early, late 60s, 1970, I believe. And without going into all the bloody details, by 1974, the whole Mass was translated into English. Now, I have on good authority a priest friend of mine who was there insisted that a portion of the Mass was farmed out to first-year Latin students, and I said, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, the et cum response, and also with you, also reveals another prejudice that they had. They were into this idea of, we want to avoid Greek dualism. It was a silly concern. First of all, the Latin had spirit in it, Et cum spirit et and second of all, the Spirit is filled in the Old Testament, right? I mean, New Testament, Old Testament. We're always talking about the Spirit. So what Spirit are you responding to when you say, and also with, and with your Spirit? The Spirit that I receive in the day of my ordination. You don't respond to anybody and with your Spirit unless he's a priest or deacon. He's in holy orders. So by taking away that Spirit, you take away the real... Explanation that is really quite beautiful. That when you're responding to me at Mass, you're not responding to Father Pekorski, because he's a lovely, wonderful human being. You're responding to him because he has holy orders, the priest, and it's not him. Incidentally, um, in this book, by the way, signed by Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, signed, so I wonder how much I could go for eBay. I mean, no, it's one of my treasures. The Spirit of the Liturgy, I ambushed him after Mass one time. I said, it can happen to me, why can't it happen to him? So I went to his Thursday morning Mass at seven o'clock, waited for him afterwards, had my picture taken with him because we were close personal friends, and then he signed it. But this book is, The Spirit of the Liturgy is foundational. If you don't have a copy of it, it's from the 1980s. It's a wonderful book. And in it he explains the ad orientem question and the dangers that are associated with this communal meal the emphasis on the Mass as a communal meal. It is certainly true, Louis Bouet tracks it, that the Jews had prayers during the banquets, during their meals, and of course the Last Supper was a meal. But it was elevated to the holy sacrifice of the Mass by Christ at the Last Supper, foreshadowing the, the crucifixion and foreshadowing the resurrection. And so the emphasis on the sacrifice is foundational, what the sacrifice is. And Cardinal Ratziger spends a good deal of time explaining that And he said that even now when we can recover the facing east by placing crucifix on the altar, so that everybody's facing the crucifix, and the objection came, well, gee, you obscure the priest, the face of the priest. And he didn't quite say it my way, but I would say, oh, happy fault. Um, So we're all facing Christ at, at the Mass. This is the beauty of the sacred liturgy. So you all have your own stories, don't you? My story is I served a Mass with the old Mass, until the 1968, I was an altar boy until 1968, Iron John Landowski was my pastor. They call him Iron John because he basically ran the diocese under the bishop, Bishop Bona. But he was a very World War I vet. And um, he was brokenhearted when all these things came down. We knew he was brokenhearted. And the new priests that came in were so exuberant. I remember one time uh, they had the sign of peace. The peace of the Christ be with you always and also with you. And the priest went up and down the aisle, every pew, and greeted. It was about maybe a ten-minute ordeal. And as a kid, I remember thinking, boy, this is very odd. It's all about him. It was uh, nothing that I thought of explicitly, but I thought, why should I be interested in what he's doing? Because I had that experience in the Old Mass. So you have your own experiences along these lines. And um, one of the sad stories that I read in Catholic World Report years ago that stuck with me was the father of a large family. This is a son writing, the, or a daughter running the the little letter to the editor. And she said that they had eight kids, four born and brought up before the council and four afterwards. And he said that the four afterwards were spoiled kids, unregulated. The, The four that were born before the council, before this at least liturgical meltdown, not blaming the council, but you see my point. Were well formed. The four afterwards were crazy kids. Or at least um, went off the rails. And she traced it. She her opinion was, she traced it to her father's loss of confidence after the council. Because you remember those. Some of you remember those days. Everybody was confused. Everybody. I mean, you had this book written by this uh, Jesuit a modern priest looks at his outdated church. Do you remember that one? Foundational hogwash. Throughout the 70s and 80s, there was a a great tenderness on the part of many priests celebrating the Mass. And what was the battle cry back in those days? Do you remember the battle cry? Everything had to be relevant. Relevant. Uh, And so the, the idea was, and this was kind of a perversion, or dumbed-down version of what the Second Vatican Council wanted to do. The Second Vatican Council wanted to make the faith more accessible, but it spun out of control afterwards. My view is that this desire to be relevant caused a lot of people to be confused. So throughout the 80s then, we were waiting for a happy day, and I know I was as a seminarian, later as a priest, for the new translation to take hold. In 1988, I believe it was the 88, the new funeral liturgy was retranslated, and we thought, hooray! Improvement at last. No improvement. Just as bad as it was before. In fact, it was even, in some respects, from my point of view, worse because they wired in certain things that were not in the original Latin. matter of fact, the eulogy is is something they inserted. And, of course, these things were routinely rubber-stamped by the bishops and sent to Rome and confirmed and came back because the bureaucracy was kind of running the show. At least, again, that's my view. By the early 90s, uh, I was sitting with some priest friends in uh, western Virginia on a day off, ten minutes, and um, I read that they wanted to change the Our Father. New translation, update it. I have it in my, in my source documentation. I can show it to you afterwards. I went ballistic. I said, this can't be. Do you remember that opening scene in Patton when he's walking about? Do you remember why he, how he told the soldiers about What did you do during the war, Dad? He said, you were out fighting the war and not shoveling uh, dirt in Louisiana, right? Some, Some words to that effect, to quote Richard Rich. I wanted to say the same thing. I thought we would lose. I really didn't expect much success. But I said, we're going to be faithful to the new translation when it comes out because we're the only ones that are faithful to the old translation it seems, the ones who are attentive to these things. Everybody's playing games with the Mass, except us. So let's fight for this thing. And we did. We started Credo, accurate translations. We sent out, look, write your bishops, write the Vatican, express your views. We want an accurate translation. We want the sacred vocabulary restored. Do it. And we grew to 2,000 priests. And we were very happy with growing to 2,000 priests. And um, I learned later that um, the Vatican was had tons. They'd never received an outpouring like that before, from my understanding. And I, just didn't, I was just dumb about all these things. We just did it. As I say, we grew to 2,000 priests. We put together a team of scholars that translated the Mass. We sent it to all the bishops saying, take a look at this translation. Take a look at these principles of translation that we put together in 1995. The principles of translation, I did an article for Catholic World Report. Look, almost one for one in agreement with Liturgic Liturgy of Of course, the Vatican got all these documents as well. So what happened was the ISIL lost, the old ISIL, there's a new ISIL and an old ISIL. Uh, ISIL lost uh, in 1993 at the November meeting. It was shocking to ISIL, and the translation had to be thoroughly reviewed. However, they launched into this long fight. They expected the new translation to be on board by 1995 the one that's coming in 2011, they thought 1995. By 1996 or early 97, the American bishops at long last reviewed and approved the translation. It was deeply flawed. They were completely worn out. One of the bishops came up to me after one of the meetings and said, Do you know what we voted on? I have no idea what we voted on. They were confused because of the paperwork. And I was following this stuff because I I had the time to do it, and and I did it. But what they didn't know, what the bureaucracy didn't take into consideration, was that the Vatican was now up on speed. They knew that something was, that the natives were restless, and Pope John Paul II said that we must be faithful to the translations. One of the uh, Roman cardinals of divine worship said that uh, some of these translations are fantasies. They weren't listening. Eventually, the translation was rejected by the Holy See, They said ISIL needs to be reorganized so that it would translate the Mass correctly, according to Liturgium Authenticum, which came out about 2000, 2001, and that uh, the translation should be accurate. And guess what happened? In 2005, I believe, we received the first section, the main parts of the Mass that we are going to be talking about next week. Beautiful translation. And Bishop Ruskowitz wrote a letter to the bishops as they were about to vote on this for the second time, or for the last time. Bishop Ruskwitz wrote, It is so good, good to see, that ISIL has ceased being a weapon of mass destruction. (laughs) It was tongue-in-cheek, you know. Uh, We're going to talk about the translations and why it's important uh, next time, I believe, right, Sabatino? And we'll go through some of the uh, beautiful things. It's now going to be possible for us to preach the Mass without saying, well, the Mass says this uh, in an abbreviated way, and then we've got to expand it. The translation really says such and such. It's an accurate translation. Translation is always a difficult business. There's always going to be flaws. We can always quibble about this, that, or the other thing. But uh, stay tuned for next week. Thank you very
1: much. Thank you very much, Father.
2: We'll cover some of these things next week, too.
1: For those that can stay around, we'll take a short, about two or three minute break, and then we'll come back together for six or seven minutes of Q&As.
2: There's a wallflower that asked a question before, and they're not going to ask it during... Um, he says, is America is the only, only place having this problem? And I said, heavens no. Yeah. America is actually pretty good compared to other parts of the world. There's a reason why Europe is slipping badly. Uh, a friend of mine who was in the Vatican, when Ratzinger was elevated to Pope said he wasn't surprised. Now, he worked in the Vatican. He worked for one of the congregations. And he said that a lot of the European cardinals in particular were very afraid of the difficulties, not only in the church, but in the world. And that's why they... Now, you have to understand, when I was reading Ratzinger in the seminaries in the 1980s, not at Mount St. Mary's, I won't tell you the seminary, Midwest seminary, you were suspect. You were suspect for reading Ratzinger. So I read the spirit of the liturgy, and I was kind of a rat groupie back in those days. And you were, you know, you were considered suspect. That's you wanted to be a trident. You know, they had all sorts of smears. You were supposed to read only the approved books, which were dissident. Uh, I used to say that I had a celibacy problem. I was for it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's. Uh...
0: Um, can you explain a little bit about what happened with the? Um, commission appointed after the Vatican II to uh, implement the liturgy.
2: The Concilium? The
0: Concil- yes.
2: Well, the Concilium uh, is really the architect of the new liturgy. ISIL was established, and by 1969, uh, they had, you know, I, I don't know if it's when it went out of business. I don't know that history of it, but Concilium was, was really, uh, I think Ratzinger himself was, might have been part of the Concilium as a staffer. There were some very, very good liturgists on Concilium, um, and some not-so-good liturgists. I wish I could answer that with more intelligence or with more information, but I don't have it all, except that I do know the timeline and it, the grand fruition of their work was the vernacular and cum la prava, which is that principles of translation.
0: Father, why the need for the uh, translation when we already had the translation in the 62 missile? It had English, Latin side by side.
2: Well, again, cum prava came up with the principles of translation, and they said, we, we critiqued it let me just give you a couple of samples here in our critique. My first response is, you're asking me? Um, but I do know that they have these principles of translation, and they wanted to have a kind of a paraphrase translation that would be relevant. And the, the whole idea was that every generation would have a new translation in accordance with the contemporary usages of terms. So words like uh, slave you know, would not be used, the slaves of Christ or handmaiden wouldn't be used, or we beg or beseech wouldn't be used. We revert to the contemporary usage. This is the whole inclusive language argument that took place in the 1980s and 1990s, that it wouldn't be speaking, and Bishop Troutman um, would say this, very, Archbishop Alarczyk, that we, we cannot speak to our young people if, unless we use so-called inclusive language. we to be alienating you know, the college kids. So they wanted to say that in the creed that the translate Homo factus, that Christ became truly human, like he's an alien from outer space. And man has a, is, is a theological word, actually, that Christ became mortal. Well, first of all, mortal means you're going to die and not rise again. Man doesn't have that connotation. You see, there's all sorts of theological problems. When you try to push a theological word like man out the door, you end up with all sorts of difficulties. God created man, male and female, he created them. So man includes male and female to be complete. See that? How do you respond
1: to the argument that the new translation of Promultis, I've heard a Benedictine priest make this argument, could lead to a revival of
2: Jansenism? Could lead to Jansenism? A revival of Jansenism. Oh, well, Yeah. Well, first of all, um, Jansenism is a rigorism and that Jansenism, the Protestant variation would be Calvinism, right? Kind of a real rigorous type of thing that not very many people are going to be saved. And so when the translation of Promultis, the bad translation is for all, it's perfectly orthodox. Christ did die for all. But the promultis means for many. Father Most has a nice little exposition on promultis. And the mistranslation for all is perfectly orthodox, because Christ did die for all. But unfortunately, that's not what the Latin says. The Latin says, for many. And what the emphasis is, is that certainly Christ died for all, but many are called and few are chosen. And so for many, kind of should remind us that we've got work to do. So it's not a Jansenism. It's what Christ actually reveals and tells us. Plus, it's in the Latin. When we have these difficult things... In the Latin, that's normative for the Catholic Church, the question is, how do we... The liturgy helps form the culture and form our minds. So if we take out all these difficult things, because it is difficulty, obviously, if we take them all out, what happens? What, What are we left with? Nothing. We're left with a contemporary cultural type of thing, singing Kumbaya.
0: Father, is it correct to say that the Tridentine Latin Mass or is, a very private Mass for the particular celebrant, as opposed to maybe what we have now.
2: Well, I celebrate the Old Mass once, I'm not very good at it, once a month at St. Michael's. Father Barris uh, celebrates the Old Mass, and he's got about 40, 50 people coming at 6.15 in the morning, Mary, if you want to come 6.15 in the morning. Yeah, St. Mary's. Um, But uh, um, a priest really feels like a priest when he celebrates that Old Mass. Uh, However, I think reform was necessary. There needed to be a little bit more participation of the people at Mass. I just see that. I can feel it. I can sense it. So I'm in favor of this organic growth by existing forms. I think the people responding for the confitior I think, would be beautiful. The Pater Noster, which some priests permit in the Old Mass, the Pater Noster, to be recited. Uh, I can see the, the readings to be in English. Those kinds of reforms, I think, would have been very nice and very happy. We're getting to another argument of what does it mean when the Council promotes organic growth from existing forms. And we can argue a lot about that, and we should have a good argument about it, because that's what the Holy Father does want us to think about. But uh, the priest might be thinking, there is a temptation to say, gee, I feel like a priest celebrating this Mass. And I, you know, there's an old joke that we have about the Monsignor that gets out of bed He's a happy. He gets out of bed, he cleans up, shaves, and he walks over to the church and he says his prayers before mass and he says he feels great. And as he begins the mass, he looks out and, and the people are there and it ruins everything. <laughs> <laughs> now, I understand that because sometimes I'm in a grumpy mood at 6.15 and I want to say my pri- a private mass. I mean, I like private masses every now and again, but we did not come to serve ourselves, we came to serve others. And there isn't the act of participation. Let me give you a quick example. B-3. N-5. A couple of weeks ago, I went to the seniors group, and I was talking, walking around, chatting with them and all, and all of a sudden the barker gets up there and starts saying, B, you could hear a pin drop. There was not a cell phone that went off, there wasn't a cough, they had four or five bingo things there, and I said, would that we have this kind of reverence and active participation at every Mass. (laughs) Is that kind of bring back bingo, save the church? (laughs) Yeah, bring back (laughs) bingo. At least the reverence that comes with bingo.
1: Um, Father, you mentioned a number of documents and one of them you referred to as flawed. And I was just wondering,
2: is there a difference in the level of authority in different documents depending on where they're coming from and how are we to know? See, the beauty of the Catholic Church is that you have a teaching authority, a magisterium. And the magisterium delivers the faith to you and in the most simple of Catholics can understand and grasp the faith just by learning the essentials. Unfortunately, everybody now becomes a theologian because of the chaos that has followed the council. I'm not blaming the council. I think the council is beautiful. I, I made Cardinal Ratzinger laugh. Uh, I made a joke one time that somebody who's pre-Vatican II who reads the Second Vatican Council documents without reference to a commentary... And a friend of mine repeated that to Cardinal Ratzinger in 1992, I think, and it made him laugh. So I said, if I made one Pope laugh in my lifetime, it's all worthwhile, you know. Um, but the levels of documents, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Cardinal Ratzinger himself said, this is not super dogma. And so there could be a, a conceptual statement in the Catechism of the Church, even the Council Documents, that's not raised to super dogma. You know, that could be stated in a better way. And so this "com le which is a criteria for translation, is a working document. It's hardly something that's dogmatic. It's an instruction based on a committee that was approved by Rome saying this is how we're going to do things. So it's not something that can't be criticized provided we have good reasons to criticize. There's a lot of documents like that. Thank
1: you very much, Father.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work,